Welcome to Do It For The Gram and Enneagram podcast with your host, Certified Enneagram Coach, Milton Stewart, where we do it for the Enneagram. We make moves to improve our community and those around us. And so, as you know, we have been in a series of systemic racism. Um, I've been teaching about it because it's important in not only my own personal inner work and Enneagram work that I do, um, but it's also important for, I think, a lot of people to make sure we're doing inner and outer work. So that's knowing what's going on, not just inside of our own little selves and personal communities, uh, because that doesn't do much for us if we only use the Enneagram only for ourselves, that you kind of dull the point of um, using the Enneagram. So when talking about outer work, actually understanding the systems that govern not only our culture and what's around us is very important. So this is going to be probably the last episode in this series on systemic racism, and it's gonna be a timeline of how systemic racism has ransacked the American um, culture and country for uh, 400 odd years. So I'm gonna go ahead and jump into that. Intro music, let's go. So in 1619 is when the date is given for uh, slavery or enslavement actually started. And that is approximately, based on this date, 401 years ago. Now, this also included Native Americans um, who were um, being assimilated, actually got a lot of diseases, um, and were killed as well at this time. Just wanted to mention that intersectionality. Want to include everyone much as possible. So that was the first big pillar, 1619, okay, in America. Now just watch how far we're going to go with the things that have been systematically in place that have done damage or harm to people in general, but more specifically to African Americans. So 1631, um, Boston actually started their first, um, the first police and they, the, the original versions of them um, up there in Boston were watchmen. And they were there to watch property because people would steal stuff. And so rich people at the time or people who had money would hire um, these watchmen or police to watch their properties. And they were reactive. They would wait. If something did happen, hopefully they're there to deter anything from happening. But if they saw something um, after it happens, then they would go try to apprehend whoever may have tried to steal some type of property from somebody. Makes sense, a little different than it is completely now, but that was kind of the very beginning of it in America. So a few years later in 1704, now this is in the South now, Charleston, South Carolina government created the first slave patrol. Now this was 
the sur- southern version of police, which was very different. The name of it was Slave Patrol. And so the idea behind it was to basically scare uh, and terrorize slaves so that they would not, they felt they would revolt or leave um, plantations. And so what these slave patrolmen did, they'd ride around at night horseback uh, with weapons uh, and aimed at preventing basically insurrections and mischief, as they called it. Uh, And they wanted to enforce slave codes um, so that black people couldn't learn, couldn't own, or couldn't earn. And so that is um, one of the truly unfortunate things that happened, but I want you to understand how the slave patrol started because it lends a lot into how our police are even policing now. So instead of like the Boston, the very first one, being reactive and watching these type of things, the slave patrol were quite opposite. They were more offensive. They were looking for any black person or enslaved person to be doing something wrong and trying to scare them. Unfortunately, we know to this day, there are still some issues there with that in different communities. And so that started in 1704, the slave patrol. Okay, keep that in mind. All right, so 1787, we have the three-fifths compromise. And so what the three-fifths compromise was basically said that black people are now three-fifths a person. That's it. Not a whole person, just three-fifths. And this was constitutional, by the way. They were in Congress talking about this stuff. And why three-fifths? So beforehand, obviously, clearly we weren't worth anything, right? So it was three-fifths because the North wanted the South to pay more in taxes. That's what it came down to. And Southerners, they wanted three-fifths or a little bit more or the black people be worth something because it gave them more people, which meant that they would maybe have more more people so they would have more voting power to change maybe what was going on in the country. So we have two sides, North and South, not necessarily discussing how to make sure people have all their liberties who are human beings, but they're discussing this based on still seeing them as, since they're black people as property. And three-fifths of a person. So that was the compromise that they came to, that black people would equal three-fifths. So one black person did not equal a white person. Equaled a little more than half of a white person. So that was literally in the Constitution, by the way. You can look that up. Three-fifths compromise. So moving forward, black people are still being enslaved for years and years and years and years. And in 1861, the Civil War happened. And this was the North versus the South. And so one of the arguments that people say is that the Civil War was about states' rights. You know what? To a certain degree, they are right. Because the state right that the Southerners were fighting for was the right to have slaves and to enslave uh, black people. So to a certain degree, they were right. But you just have to make sure you add the fact that it was over slavery. Point blank period. It was. And so this civil war ensued for a couple of years. And in 1863, when Northerners are winning the fight, the civil war, the Emancipation Proclamation um, is signed by Abraham Lincoln to free African-Americans of slavery 
And so the the tricky part about that is that it didn't just happen all in one WAP. That's the thing. It's not like he signed the bill and like slave owners were like, yeah, go ahead. Y'all go and do y'all thing. Go build your communities. This is great. You know, great day for you. You know, first of all, there were no cell phones. It took a while. There was newspaper. It took a while for information to get different places. So even though it was signed in 1863, it didn't really get everywhere um, soon. It took time. And not only did it take time, it also uh, meant that black people who were free already, mainly living in the North, were definitely free. But then it also meant that black people who um, were enslaved unfortunately had to kind of like escape in order to go get their freedom, if you get what I'm saying. Like it wasn't like people let them off or like they educated anyone who was enslaved. Like when black people found out, it was you had a lot of times to escape. You couldn't just have a sit down meeting with your plantation owner and say, hey, you know, I, I want to thank you for that raggedy shack that you gave me to live in and um, the way that you used to um, whip me. Um, and all these things, and this this great land, I just, I'm going to go ahead and move on. It didn't work like that. We know that. So one of the things is you had to figure out how to escape as well, and what will you do to actually survive and live, which is tough. So even though in 1863 the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, it didn't fully make it to every plantation and enslaved person until about 1865, which is a very important year, by the way, um, which was when... Uh, June 19th, which is Juneteenth, which is starting to be recognized more and more, thankfully. In Texas, it was the last enslaved people were found, found out that they were free. Two years later, Juneteenth, that's when it was started. Okay. And that was after the Civil War, the end of the Civil War, which was May 19th of 1865. So going forward, remember, 1865 is going to be one of the most pivotal years in American history. Period, point blank period, okay? So in 1865, the 13th Amendment was actually ratified, okay? Which was the official document that abolished slavery, except for punishment and crime, which we'll see how that comes into play as we go through this timeline. So 1865, the 13th Amendment was ratified, which um, was supposed to fully, fully abolish slavery. And that was around December the 6th. Okay, 1865, black codes were enacted. So the black codes are basically a set of rules, ordinances, and um, different social structures that put in place what black people who were free could or could not do. And basically what it did was just found a way to take all the liberties and freedoms away from black people who were formerly enslaved. So it talked about where you could work. It talked about um, what you could do. It talked about where you could eat, all these different things. And basically just limited all the freedoms. It talked about you not being able to vote because they would enact something called different, different poll tests, reading tests, all kinds of stuff. So just count how many jelly beans are in this jar. You know, look at it. If you can tell me the right number, then you can vote. If you cannot, then you cannot vote. They did a whole bunch of stuff like this to deter black people's liberties. And think about it, if you were coming from being enslaved where people didn't want you to know how to read and they would beat you or kill you if you tried to become educated, learn, own, or grow, then when the country said you're free, how in the world am I supposed to know how to read? 
that easily, you know, and some do. And then that becomes a problem because now I'm scared that I know how to vote or I know how to read because somebody may try to harm me because now I'm trying to help other people. So really, really messed up. But those black codes were doing the same thing as enslavement, except for you being on the plantation. And at the same time, it made people who were um, either considered criminals or uh, committed a crime or punishment. And here's the tricky part about that. Sometimes you create crime so people can come work back on your farm, uh, your plantation. So something that they enacted were these things called vagrancy laws. And what they would do, so a lot of black people were trying to leave the South. They was like, I got to get up out of here. Uh, it's real crazy. And I hear up north is better. I hear, up I hear on the west side is better. But down here in the South, it's too crazy. Slavery everywhere, plantation owners, police trying to kill us and beat us and lynch us. So what happened was when black people would try to leave on like um, train carts and find different ways, Southern police, slave owners, all these different people would actually enact this new thing called vagrancy law. So if they saw you supposedly just hanging around, what they considered hanging around, or making it hanging around to criminalize it, now you're in jail. And guess what? Now that you're in jail or you've committed a crime, going back to the 13th Amendment, remember, you cannot enslave a person unless they committed a crime. So now I've created a crime that you committed. So now you have to come back and work on my plantation. And now it's called, and now it's 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 kind of, I'm not going to say it's worse, but it is kind of worse at the same time because they created chain gangs. And so now that you're considered a bad person because you so-called committed a crime, now there's a huge issue with this. Because guess what? I could treat you really how I want to treat you. And now the law kind of lets me know I can. Like it gives me the freedom to say, yeah, this person's a criminal. I can treat them how I want to treat them. And so that becomes a huge issue along with some of these laws is that a lot of times it also made black orphans actually become um, workers on plantations. It, it, it literally took kids who were orphans um, who were left out and they put them on these plantations to work and not like some great work assist program. They weren't getting paid for this stuff. They were being enslaved again. So just some of the tragedy that in American history for sure. And then 1865, guess what else started? The KKK. The KKK started in 1865. The same year, think about it, that the Civil War ended the same year that Juneteenth happened, the same year the 13th Amendment is ratified, the same year the Black Codes are enacted, and now you have the KKK going around. So now you have literally the Black Codes, a social structure, systemic racism. Remember, it's, it's about systems when we say that. It's about systems. So Black Codes is a system to now take away freedom after slavery, right? And so now, not only is those two systems enacted, but now you have the KKK going around. And trust me, it is a system and a culture, but it was a group of white people who did not want to see African-Americans or anyone who was not white, for the most part, actually partake in their liberties and progress and make it. And so the whereas the laws and the the rules from black codes, the KKK sought to enforce it in ways that were physical and violent. So now you have those two things going on all at the same time in 1865, okay? All right, so then as years go on, you kind of move forward. And even though this is all going on, black people are still progressing a little bit because black people are escaping and they are going north, they're going west. 
and some are in the South. And, you know, every pocket of the South, every pocket in every place is not a horrible place, which is grateful. And I'm blessed about it. I'm blessed for it. And I'm very thankful that there are really amazing people who were white at the time who were trying to help, you know, the situation because it was like, this ain't right. This just ain't right. Like, <laughs> I may not understand everything, you know, but like, I know good and well, this ain't right. So in 1880, because of a slew of different legislations within Congress, because black people started to try to make it to Congress. I mean, trying to get lawmakers. In some places, they actually did get a, a, couple, a little bit of a foothold, you know. So in this time, around the 1880s, is when the Jim Crow era started, okay? So as black people are kind of progressing even past these, because the black codes, there was legislation from the government that said the black codes could not be like enforced anymore federally. So when that happened, here comes the next thing, Jim Crow laws, okay? So when you talk about a deep structure that has really impacted the way that people act very like very much to this exact day, 2020, this is one of the biggest impacts, um, the start of this Jim Crow era. So state by state, there were laws separating black and white people. This is discrimination, Okay, so Jim Crow laws were making it um, a social, a cultural and a norm of discriminating and separating black and white people. So basically, this looked like no funding for black people, uh, literacy tests, like I said before, and grandfather clauses uh, to stop voters, segregation and separation, no dignity or respect, and basically just um, giving anyone who is white the power to be like oh no you're black you can't eat here oh no you're black you can't do that here or you cannot do any of those things so there was many laws and litigations that went on and just a social norm of discrimination and a social it was really a caste system if that's the best way to put it it was a way of life and a way of living like you as a black person you cannot talk to me a certain way you have to treat me as if i am above you and better than you and superior to you or else it could lead to you being hurt or lynched and or your family being hurt lynched or killed so it created a whole different caste system this became the new systemic racism issue which was jim crow laws and this actually lasts into 1960s that's how far the jim crow laws even go so we're thinking about 1880s all the way to the 1960s a certain way of treating white people and a certain way of treating black people. A white person has to go first to a door. A white person sits here. They sit in the front. They get the best of the best. All these different things were like put to not only strip liberties away, but to strip the dignity away from black people. As black people are trying to grow and become better. And so just, just think about that. No matter who you are, like literally you having to be subservient to someone all the time and they're constantly taking your dignity away. Just think about what that does to you, um, the people around you, your culture, your family. Just imagine that, okay? For years and years and years. And if you stand up for yourself or you feel like something's unfair, you know, what are you going to do about it? If you do something about it, you could be hurt, killed, or harmed. Just try to imagine that if you're listening, when something was so unfair and you were so mad about it, you had to let somebody know you were angry, you know? But imagine that being the way of life. So as we move forward, one of the biggest court cases was in 1896. It was Plessy versus Ferguson. 
And what this is, the biggest thing to remember about Plessy versus Ferguson was that it federally legalized racial segregation and discrimination in schools and in education and in many different ways. And so they called it separate but equal. And so you would think, you know, by the, by the title of it, names can be deceiving, separate but equal. We're going to keep it separate, but it's going to be equal. You're going to have equal things here, equal things there. We know good and well that didn't happen, unfortunately. And so what really happened is that black schools, black communities did not get the same funding white schools did. They did not get um, the same resources, all these things. Like everything was not equal at all. It was separate, but it wasn't equal by far. And at the same time, Jim Crow laws are still going on. And at the same time, the KKK is actually when black people are building schools and trying to further themselves and get things, black schools are being bombed. Even at that time, they're being burned. Communities are being wrecked, even though they're black communities that are maybe building up and they have no real stake in big political agendas going around, but they're just trying to, black people just trying to build their own community, especially like the, the Tulsa. Tulsa was Black Wall Street and it was vandalized. It was burned down. It was ravaged by um, white people, unfortunately. Black people were really really doing some amazing things and building some real wealth in a black community. And there was great things and there was striving and thriving. But unfortunately, it was burned down. People were beat. People were killed um, in Tulsa, which was called the Black Wall Street, uh, the Tulsa race riots. You should definitely research that. It is sad that that even occurred and it's not taught more heavily in our schools in our um, country. That is one thing that's happening. But the biggest thing is it legalized segregation. And so that it legalized discrimination. That's what it really did. And by discrimination, we all know that means that you're not going to get like the fair end of any stick. So racial segregation in schools and education. So now you're stopping African-Americans from progressing. And I'm talking about kids and youth, you know, not even just adults, but like you're stopping whole families and communities based on what? The color of their skin? Okay. And so it legalized racism and discrimination, 1896, with Plessy versus Ferguson. So we go some years into the future, and black people are still progressing, even through um, the harsh things that are going on in these many different times. Um, thankful for them and some really, really well-intentioned, um, good heart, good people who are white, because there's no way it could happen if there weren't white people trying to do the right thing and trying to care and love people regardless of our differences. So 1930, the Great Depression happened, um, and that wrecked all of America for sure, right? And so during this time, FDR, President FDR, he enacted this thing called the New Deal, which was a series of acts and authorities and all these different things that kind of helped, um, was supposed to help America get back on his feet because our economy was was just ravished, right? And so he created the New Deal. And this New Deal was something that like people that has been praised, he's been praised for, especially when I was learning about him, like, how great and good this New Deal was and how it helped out um, Americans and get our economy back on track and all these type of things. Not until I did deeper research did I realize that the New Deal excluded basically black people. Most of all of the acts that he had and the different things that he implemented 
actually excluded black people um, in order to get the bill passed and in order um, to have this weird way of working with um, his cabinet was kind of mixed full of people who were Democratic and people who were considered Republican or whatever at the time. And so he was trying to manage a political relationships in that one. And so in order to get some of these things passed, he basically had to exclude black people. And what that means is that uh, the New Deal excluded whatever black people did most, and it actually created more unemployment for black people, unfortunately. And the things it was supposed to do, like protect wages, create minimum um, wages for black people, and um, all these type of things, it never really got to that point because what it did is that um, it either black people were the first people fired and the last people hired. And so at the same time, these things are supposed to be enacted. They actually hurt black people more than anything. And they excluded them because it didn't add protections for them. And so white employers, uh, they were the first to let black people go if they had to in the, for economic purposes. Um, but it was still based on race. So the black people were the first ones to let go because they didn't have to necessarily uh, make sure that they had those wages and the type of jobs that black people had at the time. Um, even farming, it just allowed uh, white people to, white employers, I would say, to let black people go a little bit easier in the sake for their own economical gain. Um, because it's like, I'm going to have to let you go because I need to make, you know, this amount of money and need to be like profiting here. So it did not help in that way, unfortunately. It was actually um, quite discriminatory for black people. And so at this same time, we're still in the 1930s we have a lot of lynching that's going on um, in America. And so um, that's something else that really was going on heavily. And it took a while for FDR to do it, but he finally put in place anti-lynching laws. And you might want to look that up too, anti-lynching laws. Because if you've ever seen pictures of Black people being lynched, it may be the gross, saddest, despicable, horrible thing that you probably could see. Because usually when someone's being lynched, especially at the beginning, or they're burning their bodies while they're lynching them, um, there's a crowd of white people watching. And I I don't understand how we could get to a point where that's okay with anybody. Not just a white person thing, but, but anybody. Well, that's okay. Yeah. All right. And so in 1937, here comes redlining. So the New Deal didn't help black people during the Great Depression kind of get back on their feet. It helped white people do it. It helped white people. Uh, they were able to choose to write the job that they wanted as um, the New Deal happened, where black people had to choose, had to get whatever was left, which had usually the lowest wage, if they were able to actually choose a job. So that's a struggle. And it was the worst of the jobs, clearly, that you could be chosen because no one's going to choose the worst jobs first. Uh, so... Uh, 1937, we have redlining. And so what redlining is, it, redlining is basically, um, they created a map of different cities and states that only certain people could live in. The nicer areas, the ones that were funded more, the ones at the better schools, uh, were only for white people. They were only for white people. And what redlining meant is that black people could not go to the bank, even if they had a job, and they were doing well and they would like had enough to actually get a loan to get a house and get a mortgage. They were not given it by the bank based on a color grid and your skin color. So they said, oh, if, even if you could afford a house in this nice neighborhood, 
that was obviously not predominantly white. It was all white. Then um, you couldn't stay there because guess what? This area is only for these type of white people. And then this next area, it's nice, but it's more upcoming white people. And then the other one, maybe you could stay in that one. It's a little bit rougher or quite a bit more rough, um, but maybe you can stay in that one. We don't fund that one as much. And then the other one, which is some of the some of the um, probably highest crime areas or the least funded or not funded areas, you're welcome to try to get a loan and find a place to live there. So redlining was literally, there's so much to look up to. Redlining is literally what people did. And we talked about this in episodes, so I'm not going to go too deep into that. All right. So in the 1940s, the civil rights movement was getting strong and powerful. We're talking about powerful civil rights leaders are actually doing amazing things and they are challenging the status quo. And it's a beautiful thing because things aren't right, correct at all. So they're marching and they're doing protests and all these different things, beautiful things to to let people in power know, like, you cannot keep operating this way and treating us this way. And so at this exact same time, Confederate monuments are being erected. Now, this is the thing about it. When people are taking down these Confederate statues and all this stuff and people are upset and they can't believe why, we have to understand our history. That is the important part. We got to go back and look, okay, why were Confederate monuments uh, like erected? Why? So when we really think about it, Confederate monuments were erected because they were in opposition to the civil rights movement. They were there to put up something in big areas to say white supremacy is still the thing here. Even if you're marching, I'm going to put a, a person here, a statue here of a person who unfortunately stood for some stuff that is not okay. Like whether or not, you know, people believe they're a good person outside of it or not. What they stood for, what the statue went up for is not the good stuff that they stood for. And that's the problem, you know. So like taking them down and I say put them in a museum because I think it's important to remember our history so we don't forget, you know, is very important. But like stuff like that, that's that's why it's important to look at this stuff and start to like maybe this shouldn't be here because it represents something that our culture is not about. So then uh, 1944, we have the GI Bill which was, you know, after World War II, the idea was that, hey, soldiers, if you fought in the war, you should be able to come back to America and have the ability to get your life started well, to actually uh, progress in life, get an education, get a house for your family, all these beautiful things you should be able to do because you fought for your country, which is definitely understandable. The problem is, once again, it did not include black people. 1.2 million veterans were left out of the the GI Bill. And so that's a huge issue. You went and fought for your country, right? And or you were drafted by your country. I had an uncle uh, who fought in World War II and died. You did this for your country. And so they promised you before you, when you were coming back, before you left, you said, hey, we got something for you. When you come back, thank you for serving your country. This is amazing. But when you get back, there's literally nothing for you. You go to the bank and say, hey, I like to move in this neighborhood. I'm a veteran. Because you're black, you can't get it. And so that's so important. When you think about the white servicemen who came back and they were able to utilize the GI Bill and actually able to make it and like improve their lives and move their families up and gain wealth in these different things, that's because it, it came from help from the federal government sometimes, the GI Bill, whereas black people didn't get that. So you have to think about all these setbacks and all these things that are happening to black communities and black people and just how black people aren't able to progress 
as they naturally should be, as anybody naturally should be in a country and build wealth and pass it to their families and all these type of things. Black people aren't able to because every time there's something promised or something that's supposed to happen, there's some something systematic, which these are systematic things, institutional things that stop black people from getting there, just like this GI Bill. All right, so moving forward, 1960s, the assassination of so many civil rights leaders was ridiculous in the 60s. And this just lets you know that something was truly happening, something was truly changing, something was truly transforming when it gets to a point like this. Unfortunately, it's sad, but that is what happened. So in the 1960s, we had Martin Luther King was assassinated. Malcolm X was assassinated. JFK was assassinated. Robert Kennedy was assassinated. Medgar Evers was assassinated. So when something like this happens, you know it's crazy. And you can almost say that this is definitely something akin to a conspiracy theory, where you believe in conspiracy theories or not. You can say when a whole lot of civil rights leaders who believe in something powerfully are all assassinated in one decade, I mean multiple big people. I'm talking about the people you see on TV, you hear in the newspaper, everybody knows them, who are fighting for something that is different and they're assassinated. Come on now. This isn't just a coincidence by far, not even close. So we really got to start looking and thinking about these things in totality. What's going on? So this is the stuff that's actually going on and around in America. This is a big deal. 1960, assassinations of just about all the civil rights black leaders and leaders, period. The president was assassinated because he was a person who was associated with Martin Luther King. So really, really think about this, what's going on in our country, right? Whereas this is such a big deal that people are being killed for trying to have equality and equity. So there's some powers that be that don't want that, as you know, a lot. Okay. So one of the biggest things to kind of remember from that is that at this same time, Martin Luther King was considered by the FBI in the 1960s as the most dangerous man in America. And I'm not, I'm not talking about like most dangerous, cool title on the front of a Time magazine or something. I'm talking about they literally consider him the most dangerous American ever or at the time and even were considering him a terrorist. That's how crazy it was. Yeah. Our own country was considering Martin Luther King a terrorist and the most dangerous man in America. Hmm. Just sit on that for a second. All right. So moving forward, 1971. There's the war on drugs by Nixon. So he called the war on drugs public enemy number one. Very famous quote from him. And um, there is, um, when you think the war on drugs, the, the words just sound like, yeah, we got to stop those drugs, you know, like, you know, especially at that time. People are like, yeah, yeah, drugs is such an enemy. But what it really was, was not the war on drugs. It was the war on black people and people who were against the Vietnam War, or people who were against the war. So, this caused a huge issue because, in actuality, Nixon was really trying to save his job. So, what do you do when you're a politician or a leader and you want to keep your job or position? Um, you rile people up. You create a cause to be against together. You inspire fear in people. And that's how you do it. And that's what he did. 
So he created the war on drugs, which is started as a political move to keep his job, but it also had to create an enemy, which was against people who were democratic or on the left, as people call it, whatever. So in 1994, Nixon's domestic policy chief, John Ehrlichman, he actually gave us the true ulterior motive, which I just mentioned, to the war on drugs, which was, he said, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So this was 1994, and that was his, his domestic policy chief speaking out um, truth about what he had been a part of with Nixon. The war on drugs was really, like I said, the war on black people and people against the war. And it was a political move for him to keep his office. And what's so sad is that this hurt black communities so much. Because now that there's a war on drugs, remember how I said in the very beginning, in um, I think 1631, when the Boston Police Department was reactive and they were just watching for things to make sure it didn't happen. This is partly when police became very intrusive and in starting to create and find things. This is where you will get, if you listen and watch certain movies, you talk about cops planting stuff on people. It's a war on drugs. Remember, we got to find drugs. So guess what? If I bust into your house as a police officer, it's got to be something there. Even if it's not nothing there, it's got to be something. Oh, I found some. Look. So like this created, it was so messed up. If it was a real war on drugs, we lost it because there was no help. And we're going to see going forward that it only gets worse because of these things he tried to implement. Okay. And so the war on drugs, what it led to is in 1973, the prison industrial complex. And so if you haven't seen the documentary 13, recommend you check it out. It is a great documentary about just how the 13th Amendment really is like the new version of slavery, basically. But the prison industrial complex was started in 1973, and this is where prisons became privatized. And what happens is the more bodies you have in the cell, the more money you make. Okay, so the idea behind these big prisons is to get more bodies in prison. And so guess what? If I can go arrest black people and go raid them and criminalize them with drugs and give them these crazy sentences and put them in there, then guess what? Mm, I'm making more money if I'm an owner of one of these private prisons. And if I get these big companies to invest in it, oh, we're, we're cooking with Crisco now. And I, now I got these really, really big companies actually investing in my prison. And so we're going to make more money this way, okay? And so this was clearly an institution and a system that really messed up black people because now you're raiding the community, which is trying to get back together after the 1960s, after the civil rights leaders have already been assassinated. Um, but there's still many African-American leaders who are fighting, who are, I'm so thankful for. But now guess what? Now we can go in and uh, criminalize them and throw them in prison and break up families and break up homes and do all these different things and terrorize them, you know? So when you're being terrorized, 
you know, what's your response to sit there and say, let me call my lawyer? No, you have a natural tendency to want to fight back. Why do you think the Black Panthers were so strong? It, it was a protection thing, not a aggression, aggression thing. So you have this natural tendency to fight back. And so the thing is, that only makes a situation look even worse on TV when people are recording it or they skew data and, and videos for you so they can push their agendas. It's messed up. It's really messed up. So all this is going on because um, private prisons equal big money, more inmates, more money. And it also helped them to get free labor. That was the next thing. Like the prison industrial complex, it also created free labor. So not only are we doing that, but now we have these people who have been put in jail to actually do stuff, cheap and free labor. We can build all these different things and sell them. And either we don't pay you at the very beginning. Obviously, they didn't pay them anything. But then after a while, we develop a system where we make even more money off of the stuff you make in here. And we pay you very little. And these are little, small, menial jobs that if you are a person who's going to get out, very unlikely you're going to find a job and be able to get hired at one of the places necessarily that has one of these job skills that you're learning in prison, unfortunately, especially these private prisons. So that's going on, and that's wrecking black communities, if you think about it. Imprisoning a lot of black men, especially, I'm in these situations. And so the 1980s come, prison industrial complex is still going on. Clearly, we lost the war on drugs because there's more and more drugs on the street, I'm, I'm crazy enough. Like, you would think it would the rates would go down, you know, Less people be doing drugs. If it was a war on drugs, well, we definitely got our butts kicked if we, uh, if there was a war on drugs because more drugs were still in the streets. And how they got there, I'm going to let you try to figure that one out because these things didn't just derive in poor neighborhoods all of a sudden. These drugs came from outside the neighborhood. I'm just going to tell you that. And I'll let you do your own research on how crack and cocaine got into the American society because that's another whole big conversation that has a lot of information around it. And um, it's just too much to go into right now. And I don't want to jump into conspiracy type talks and stuff. Not on here, even though I believe some of it is 100% real and relevant. All right, 1980s, the Reaganomics comes in. And Reaganomics was one of the worst things to ever happen to black people. It set black, peop black people back probably, I don't know, 50, 60 years almost. And the reason it did that is because it stripped everything that was helping black people to actually be able to make it. I'm talking Medicare, Medicaid, all these health things. It, it, he literally stripped all of the social aiding things that helped black communities and other communities too, some um, who were marginalized, totally took it away. And what's interesting, most people be like, Reagan was a great president. No, he was not. Not for black people. And people were marginalized. He was the worst president. Set us back many years. And so he doubled down on Nixon's war on drugs. You know why? Because it worked. People bought into a hook, line, and sinker. They're like, yeah, we got to get rid of these drugs. So they criminalized black people on TV. There's, oh, you can go watch it on YouTube. There's videos of... Um, very sad videos showing uh, Reagan and his administration criminalizing black people in drugs. I mean, videos. Like, it's, it's very blatant. It's not even like, oh, you derived that from what you saw. No, no. It's like very right there. And so that puts an image in people's minds and scares them, especially if you don't know. You're thinking all black people are criminals and they do drugs and all this type of stuff, right? And so one thing he did, which was 100% against marginalizing black people, was the difference between the different types of cocaine and crack that different communities did. So 
for 500 grams of powdered cocaine, which is predominantly what white people use, you got the same five-year sentence as a person who used crack cocaine. So do you see the difference here? In the poor communities and black communities had like crack cocaine, whereas the white communities had powdered cocaine. So five grams of crack cocaine in a black neighborhood, if you caught with that, you would get five years, if not more. You have to have 500. So we're talking about a hundred times the amount difference just to get the same sentence. Targeted. This stuff is targeted. Like you have to understand, this is systemic, systematic, targeted things. It's not just, you know, like just so happened or just like, like all these things were targeted and they were on purpose. These people know what they're doing. These people in these high offices, like they're intelligent people, unfortunately. They're just using their intelligence for things that are not good. And, you know, when I guess we go on fear and hatred and our Enneagram numbers are super low at the unhealthiest you know, we can be in these places, right? So we have to really be careful. Like no matter who we are, if we're using the law of three, we can't go to the bottom of our triangle. We got to go to the top. The third force needs to come from a higher body. It needs to be us being able to love and be able to be humble, okay? And so that really messed up black people in so many different ways. The black community was ravaged by this already. So think about all the things coming up to this point in 1980s, the slew of messed up stuff going on. With Reaganomics, just ruining everything for black communities, unfortunately. Um, and that's just a part of it. It stripped away so many different things that like were protections and helped black people to try to like just just make it. Hey, you you heard this timeline. Think about it. How much stuff is really messed up with the community and the people. You have to live with this. You know, this is not just like, oh, looking in a book. You have to live with this. Your family, the people before you, they didn't have opportunity. They were cheated. They were cheated like crap. Like, and then you treated like crap. Then you're trying to make it. But then they're trying to criminalize you. And then people are scared of you. Then you're dealing with, you seeing people, black people die or being brutalized. But then you have to keep living on. And like, you have all this trauma, epigenetics, all this trauma within your body. Um, that you don't even necessarily know about, but you're living it. You're living the pain, you're living the stress, you're living the weight. So we we have got to understand just how messed up these systems are, right? And the crazy part, and I think the, the most challenging part is that many of us, you know, we still live in white supremacy right now, a lot of times in systemic racism, and we don't realize it because it's so baked into our culture. Look at all this stuff. You could be an average white person who don't dislike black people, who would not consider yourself racist, and you can still be contributing to institutionalized and systematic racism. Yes, easily, without knowing it, without trying. Just living your life in an American way literally could be oppressing someone. And that's the crazy part about it. And that's the reason it's system. It's bigger than, bigger than just one or two people doing these things. We get baked in the system, and then we don't understand what's happening, and then we just perpetuate it without even knowing it. So we got to be careful. And really take note. All right, 1990s. So 1990s, racial profiling, it's always been a thing, right? But um, it took a legal stand. It, it got, like, in New York, they, one of their, their new laws was, like, stop and frisk. You, police literally had the ability to look at a person, anyone, and say, I'm going to stop and frisk you to see if you got any drugs or guns or weapons or anything, right? So that could be anybody, you see what I'm saying? You ain't had to commit a crime. Stop and frisk. And who was stop and frisk most? Of course, black people. Of course, especially black men. And so now, you know, you never know what could happen where a cop may stop and frisk you at. 
You never know what could happen in a situation like that. So imagine somebody always, just imagine how you feel. You ain't, you're just going about your day, trying to have a good day. Or you might be stressed out. A whole lot going on in your life and you're trying to survive and make it. And everywhere you go, you're feeling like you're going to be criminalized or stopped just because of the color of your skin. Just, just imagine. Just imagine. Hmm. 1994, three-strike law. Um, and this was a law enacted which still had some infusions of drugs and different penalties that usually impact black people, basically. Um, and basically... After three strikes, which are like these small, very small felonies, which weren't really, when I mean, you think felony, you're like, oh no, that's a felony. But you know, felony charges might be the amount of something like they were doing with different drugs and things. So that actually put a lot of black people away for life as well. Because think about it, if you grew up in the 70s, you were arrested, you got out and you grew up and then you were arrested again in the 80s for something, um, rather you were doing drugs or not, instead of like trying to rehabilitate you and trying to alleviate drugs in the community and treat it as if it's something that you need to be rehabbing and not like you're a criminal because you did drugs. Oh my goodness, how different would we be? But this three-strike law put a lot of black people behind jail for life. Lots. You want to talk about ravaging communities? You want to talk about men not being there, fathers not being there for their kids? Well, guess what? They were all taken away. They were criminalized. They were put in prisons. They weren't given the needed resources and help that other races in America tend to get. So that's what happens when you do that. And then we end up in a place where we still have extreme racial issues. Because we ain't never worked on them. We ain't never know. We never worked on them. Never. Like we, I mean, we have, but barely. Like we have to really do some real work and stop doing all this junk here and create all this false crap. But we got to do it together. And then the last one I would say is wrongful weed incarcerations. And this is still part of the, still part, this is 1996, still part of the drug, um, the war on drugs that was started back in 1971. So think about this. This is still happening. People are still releasing um, people from prison who were incarcerated for marijuana charges. This president and the last president both let people out who were incarcerated for marijuana charges for years, you know? And so you just think about that, how long that has lasted and still impacts us. 1971 all the way to 2020. We're talking about still how messed up that is, right? And so these wrongful weed charges are messed up because guess what? Some of these same people who enacted these laws to put black people um, in so-called drug offenders behind prison for life and all these long time are the same people who are now investing in actually growing marijuana and making a huge profit off of it. And they're not, and unfortunately, some of these, a lot of these people aren't the ones who are going to these prisons trying to get people out who were charged for drugs and marijuana. They don't care to a certain degree. Some of them don't even care. Uh, so it's it's very it's very screwed up and messed up. The same people who voted to make sure like, oh, these people are wrong and they're doing all these drugs are the same people now who own marijuana farms. So I just want you to see all the systems that were in place. You know, I just barely scratched the surface on this because there's so much more information, obviously. But I just wanted to hit some of the major events that have affected black people all the way up to this day in a systemic way, right? I'm not talking about every small thing that ever happened because there's too much, right? But if you look at systemic issues, the big things that really have impacted the black community that has really hurt the black community and black people over time in America and just the tragedy of it all, this is it. This is it. Like, these are the dates. These are the events. These are things that happen that are still impacting the black culture. And the most beautiful thing about it is the fact that 
Like, black people still rise. Like, still rise. Like Maya Angelou, she said it, you know? Just like, I still rise. No, no matter what, we still rise. And I think that's the beautiful part about it. I think the beautiful part about the human spirit of anybody is that black, white, Asian, Hispanic, Native American, whatever. Like, the beautiful part about it is there's this beautiful um, ability and strength to be able to continue to fight for what's right and what's good and have empathy and compassion. And so that's what I definitely want to let everyone know here. I want you to be educated and know these things so that you can display this information but in these facts. But don't forget that like, if we are to transform people, if we are to transform ourselves, it's going to happen at the heart level in our hearts. It's not going to just happen in our brain. We will have some brain ideas and like some epiphanies and like, oh my goodness. But that doesn't transform uh, different people and or ourselves. What the transformation happens, it happens in our hearts. So we have to have more empathy and more compassion for people than we ever have in our whole lives. It hurts to love people. <laughs> it hurts to love people who hate you. And that has been something that I have been working on for quite a while. And it's been tough. I've been praying for quite a few people who probably hate me, <laughs> probably dislike me uh, quite a bit and probably dislike a lot of things going on. But I, I, I'm, I'm trying my best to have empathy and more compassion for them because I know that's the only way that uh, things will change and be transformed. But that's the only way I need to be living too. I, I cannot and I will not live with hate in my heart continuously. It is too much a burden to bear. And I don't know who said that quote, but I 100% agree. So um, I, I am dedicated to this work, uh, especially now. I didn't enter the Enneagram space thinking I would be going in necessarily doing DE and I work. I just thought I'd be doing Enneagram teaching and, you know, I would speak from the black perspective. But this year has shown me um, that I have a part in helping to heal through the use of the Enneagram and diversity, equity, and inclusion. So it has done uh, a plethora for me and helped me to face and see a whole bunch of things that I didn't know before. And I'm thankful and blessed for it. So I thank you so much for listening, for listening to this series. The next episode is about updates that's coming out with the podcast. The next series, we'll be talking about defense mechanisms. I'm going to have a special guest who uh, is a Patreon supporter, but she is a beast, is a Patreon supporter, and she is a beast. She is uh, absolutely amazing. And we're going to be going a little bit more deeper into these defense mechanisms and what actually happens uh, with your Enneagram type. Because this is a time where people are very defensive and these defense mechanisms come out like nobody's business. All right. And so we need to be able to know what they are uh, and know how they resonate and move in our lives, because it's very important that we um, notice them when they're happening in ourselves and in other people, because that gives us a little bit more empathy, a little bit more compassion. And then also just to um, let you know, there's some amazing things coming up. 2021, January 7th. I have the Kaizen Complete Enneagram program. It is one of my certification programs. I'm teaching people how to use the Enneagram in their lives for uh, personal and professional. I believe you must be a practitioner to do this Enneagram work and not just a person who makes very amazing and funny memes. Um, I believe it's deep work if you plan to use it, um, actually. So I'm actually starting a class. It's a 12-week program that has uh, online-based learning, but also every Thursday for those 12 weeks, I'll be teaching live and there's a community-based learning within it. There's a lot of community building and activities because we're not only going to learn more about the Enneagram, you're going to learn more about yourself and really make sure you're doing the work as well. So when you're teaching and helping other people, you are giving a beautiful gift to them and helping them to transform 
and get out of some of the patterns that are trapping them in life. Also, coming up soon, we have the, which is absolutely amazing, the Global Summit. I was invited to speak on two panels, Dance Dance right now in my little studio. Uh, I'm super excited about those two panels that I'm on, and I'm super blessed to be invited to do it. One of the panels is uh, called Free to Be Me in the Enneagram Space, which is a powerful panel. Like, it is some amazing people I'm on that panel with. And just to, like, not even to let you know too early or to spoil it, but Abby brings it home. I feel like we were on a relay, and Abby was the fourth leg, and Abby brought it home strong, super strong. So that's super amazing. And then also, the um, the other panel is me and a group of three other men, Russ Hudson, Tyler Sitt, and Mario Sakura. And we talk kind of really about toxic masculinity, to be honest, and what it means in the Enneagram space. And so um, I think those two are very important topics, and I want you to check it out. The link will be on this podcast episode, and I hope to see you in the next episode, the next series. I thank you so much for those who have listened to the Systemic Racism series. I know it cannot be easy all the time, and I know I've also lost listeners doing this as well, but that's okay. I'm not for everyone, as my good friend Jessica Dixon says. I'm thankful for this time. I'm thankful for you listening Um, to this point. Please subscribe. And if you want to become a patron and support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com forward slash do it for the gram and uh, become a patron uh, listener because I am adding new stuff there more and more as I build up to be able to do this and my other Enneagram work full time. So thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. If you're feeling kind of crazy and get triggered by someone, take a deep breath and do it for the gram. The Enneagram, of course. And I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.